0: This Daily 202 podcast is sponsored by Nokia. Nokia is helping drive 5G for America. Powered by Nokia Bell Labs, our innovations accelerate the nation's future. Learn more at nokia.com slash open to more. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, August 19. In today's news, Joe Biden officially becomes the Democratic Party's nominee for president. The Postmaster General says he will suspend policies blamed for mail delays until after the election. And the World Health Organization warns that young people have emerged as the main spreaders of the coronavirus. But first, the big idea. An exhaustive investigation, led by members of President Trump's own party, portrays his 2016 campaign as posing counterintelligence risks through its myriad contacts with Russia, eager to exploit assistance from the Kremlin, and seemingly determined to conceal the full extent of its conduct during a multi-year probe. A long-awaited report by the Senate Intelligence Committee contains dozens of new findings that appear to show far more direct links between Trump associates and Russian intelligence operatives. The report describes former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort and his receptivity to Russian outreach as a, quote, grave counterintelligence threat that made the Trump campaign susceptible to malign Russian influence. The Intelligence Committee determined that Russian President Vladimir Putin personally directed the hack-and-leak campaign, and concludes that members of Trump's transition team probably fell prey to Russian manipulation that they were too callow to recognize. Kremlin operatives were capable of exploiting the transition team's shortcomings, the report says, adding, quote, based on the available information, it is possible, and even likely, that they did so. Now, this report is the first official U.S. government document to flatly identify Konstantin Kalimnik, Manafort's longtime business partner, as a Russian intelligence officer. The report cites evidence that Kalimnik may have been directly involved in the Russian plot to hack into the Democratic Party's computer networks and provide plundered files to the group WikiLeaks to be released for maximum impact in our 2016 election. Kalimnik's name is mentioned over 800 times in the report. Kalimnik started working with Manafort in the mid-2000s as his primary interpreter when Manafort was hired to run the political campaigns of Viktor Yanukovych, the Kremlin-linked politician from eastern Ukraine. The new report concludes that Kalimnik, quote, likely served as a channel to Manafort for Russian intelligence services and that those services likely sought to exploit Manafort's access to gain insight into the campaign. Indeed, the report says, that Manafort turned over highly sensitive campaign information, including polling, to the Russian operative. It also says that Kalimnik may have been the key figure who spread the false narrative that the Ukrainians interfered in the 2016 U.S. election, which was Kremlin propaganda that continues to be parroted by President Trump and some of his top allies on Capitol Hill. In one of its most startling passages, the new report, concludes that one of Trump's core claims of innocence cannot be credited. In written testimony to the team of federal prosecutors led by former special counsel Bob Mueller, Trump insisted under oath that he could not recall ever discussing the WikiLeaks dumps with his longtime political advisor, Roger Stone, or any other associate. But this report lays out evidence that despite Trump's claims, the president did, in fact, speak with Stone about WikiLeaks and with other members of his campaign team about Stone's access to WikiLeaks on several occasions. The document describes Trump and associates of his campaign as incapable of candor. Again, this was written by Republicans. It offers new proof that former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn lied about his conversations with Russia's ambassador to the United States, It raises troubling questions about Manafort's decision to squander a plea agreement with prosecutors by lying to Mueller's team. And it accuses Blackwater founder Eric Prince, the brother of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, of providing deceptive accounts of his meetings with a Russian oligarch in the Seychelles weeks before Trump was sworn into office. The overall portrait that emerges from the report's 966 pages is of repeated encounters between the Trump campaign and Russian operatives, but no formal collusion. The two sides shared the same objective, defeating Hillary Clinton, and they basked in one another's admiration. But the report concludes that more because of ineptitude than any principled commitment to the sanctity of American democracy, the partnership was never formally consummated. The new report lays out how that Russian lawyer who met with Manafort Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner at Trump Tower before the 2016 election had, quote, more significant connections to the Kremlin than have been previously reported. The Intelligence Committee's report notes that their investigators made referrals last year to the Justice Department for, quote, potential criminal activity by key Trump world figures during the course of their investigation. Don Jr., Kushner, the president's son-in-law, and Manafort were among those flagged by investigators to federal prosecutors because the committee believed that their testimony was contradicted by information unearthed by their team and by Mueller. Now, it seems that the Justice Department has never taken any action to follow up on the referrals for perjury. This document would read like a harrowing historical account. Were it not, for the mounting evidence that many of the same forces of disruption are lining up once again to interfere in our 2020 election. Attorney General Bill Barr has personally intervened in criminal cases against Trump allies Stone and Flynn, and Trump supporters on Capitol Hill, including Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, have reportedly accepted material from Russian-tied sources in an effort to discredit Joe Biden. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, today's podcast is coming to you from Wilmington, Delaware, where Joe Biden last night officially secured the Democratic nomination, winning votes cast by party delegates scattered across bridges, beaches, and state houses in 57 states and territories in an online spectacle that marked the first virtual national party roll call vote. When the nomination became official, cameras flipped to the 77-year-old former vice president who was watching the virtual roll call with his wife, Jill, at a school here. His grandchildren joined them and shot off streamers and tussled with balloons as Biden beamed at a camera instead of a crowd. Jill Biden headlined the two-hour event from an empty classroom, and she said classrooms like the one she was standing in, where she used to teach, empty now because of the pandemic, will, quote, ring out with laughter and possibility again if her husband is elected in November. Democrats also used the night to elevate the issue of health care. Former presidents Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter added to the unrelenting criticism of Trump. Republicans were also featured, continuing a theme that began Monday. Cindy McCain, the wife of the late John McCain, narrated a video chronicling the unlikely friendship between Biden, a lifelong Democrat, and her husband, the 2008 Republican nominee for president. Former Secretary of State Colin Powell A retired general who served under three Republican presidents also appeared via video, along with several national security heavyweights, diplomats, generals, foreign policy officials, who came to offer endorsements of Biden and sharp critiques of this president's handling of the world. Former Republican Senator Chuck Hagel said Trump has committed a dereliction of duty by not responding at all to Russia allegedly offering bounties for the murder of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. And former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, who Trump fired because she was unwilling to enforce his Muslim travel ban, also expressed concerns during the convention about ongoing Russian influence over Trump. Former Secretary of State John Kerry said Trump is a laughingstock on the global stage. Number two. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy said he will temporarily suspend policies blamed for mail delays. He said the U.S. Postal Service will shelve the controversial cost-cutting initiatives until after the November election, canceling service reductions, reauthorizing overtime, and suspending the removal of mail sorting machines and public collection boxes. This reversal comes hours after at least 21 states announced plans to sue the mail service and DeJoy arguing that his policy changes, which have been widely blamed for mail slowdowns already, will interfere with their abilities to conduct elections. DeJoy is poised to address those issues at a Senate hearing on Friday, then before a House panel on Monday. On the Monday hearing, Robert Duncan, the chairman of the USPS Board of Governors and a director of a super PAC supporting Trump's re-election, will also appear. DeJoy's announcement did little to quiet concerns or address questions about the continuing backlogs at processing plants and delays in home delivery. Democratic lawmakers pledged that they will continue to press for answers and elaboration on the agency's preparedness to collect election-related mail. But, 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 this is important. Regardless of who wins the presidential election in November, Trump loyalists are slated to maintain an iron grip, on the board and postmaster general job for several years to come. DeJoy was appointed by a board that is now dominated four to two by devoted Trumpists. While the administration still has to make hundreds of political appointments across the federal government, boards, and various commissions, Trump was able to leave his mark on USPS's traditionally nonpartisan governing board. He benefited from a vacant board with empty seats when he took office, which was made possible thanks to obstruction by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell that left Trump with a clean slate to mold his agenda. Number three. Many nations in Asia which had previously pushed coronavirus infections to enviably low rates have experienced surges in recent weeks. At the same time that the age of those infected has been skewing dramatically younger, the World Health Organization has issued a formal warning that people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s are increasingly driving the spread of the contagion. More than half of confirmed infections in Australia and the Philippines in recent weeks have been people younger than 40, a stark contrast to the predominantly older patients from previous months. In Japan, 65% of new infections have occurred in people below the age of 40. For colleges and universities here in the United States, where students in their late teens and 20s live in tight quarters and mingle at off-campus gatherings, The problem has proved particularly vexing. Last night, the University of Notre Dame announced that it will halt in-person teaching for at least two weeks after reporting that 147 people on campus have tested positive since August 3rd. Michigan State University also said that it will shift to remote learning for the fall semester after 187 people in East Lansing were linked to an outbreak at a popular college bar. At least 189 people at the University of Kentucky tested positive in the last two weeks. Yet a surprising number of public universities in several states are forging ahead with plans to fully reopen campuses for in-person instruction, especially in the South. States like Georgia and Florida, which are pushing their colleges to reopen, have among the highest infection rates in the nation. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican, isn't just pushing schools to open. He is now demanding that they stay open even after cases have been diagnosed and outbreaks have been shown to be in schools. On a phone call with school district superintendents, his education commissioner told them that they cannot close schools or should not close schools without first calling state officials to discuss it. Some Tennessee school districts are asking teachers and staff who may have been exposed to the coronavirus to continue in-person instruction. Republican Governor Bill Lee said school districts are free to implement a controversial CDC quarantine policy that allows essential workers to return to their jobs as long as they remain asymptomatic, even if they've been exposed. In Salt Lake City, Utah, 79 teachers have left their jobs because coronavirus concerns made them scared to teach. Meanwhile, yesterday, stock prices reached all-time highs, despite our double-digit unemployment rate, and the collapse in recent months of an estimated 100,000 small businesses. The S&P 500 has risen more than 50% since March, completing the fastest rebound from a bear market in history. For those of us who are paying close attention to the facts on the ground, equity prices seem to be growing more and more detached from reality, which suggests that another correction or crash could come if or once, irrationally exuberant Wall Street investors realize how bad it is out there and how far politicians in Washington remain from reaching a deal to deliver relief for the American people. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, August 19th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.